0: Howdy, I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and you're listening to the Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature, mind, body, and soil. Hello and welcome to the Groundwork podcast where we explore the interconnected themes of mind, body, and soil. I am your as ever grateful host, Kate Kavanaugh, and I am coming to you from an early September evening. I have to be really honest with you. Sometimes I know exactly what I'm going to say in an intro and I find them very easy to record. And other times I just feel this mounting sense of pressure to do the guest the justice that they deserve. And this has been one of those intros that I procrastinated because I just didn't know how I was ever going to bring you in to the world of Terra Couture, who you might better know as Slowdown Farmstead on Instagram and on Substack. I think that one of the greatest gifts in this podcast for me personally has been getting to speak with so many people that have inspired me and have been teachers through their writing, through their books, and all of these different things. And so when it comes down to the brass tacks of introducing them, I struggle to know how to add the appropriate gravity to the situation. And with Tara, when we embarked on. So my husband and I have wanted to end up on a farm since the beginning of our relationship almost 14 years ago. This was one of my prerequisite screening questions for future partners that I wanted to I wanted to farm and so you better be on board with that. But when we started getting really serious about looking for a farm and looking to leave the city One of the accounts that I began following was Tara at Slowdown Farmstead, and I just became so enamored with the way that she described the realities of farming and nutrition and the way that she saw nature presented to her on the farm. And every once in a while, and I don't think it happens that often, we read someone's words and we can feel the truth of them in our bones, that there is not just a resonance, but also a weight and a gravity and a tangibility to the way that they describe the world. And I think that's very true of what I saw in Tara's work. And I was instantly hooked and have been following along her journey ever since and so when i got to actually sit down and speak with her it was just just such a such a pleasure but also such a moment of oh Getting to hear her truth and to be in that container with her during it was a very special experience for me. And I think that's the best justice that I can do this introduction is just to share that with you, to share how personal this was and how heavy and how enjoyable it was. And I think that really struck me as just the joy that I felt in the container of this conversation. One of the things I really want to stress here, Tara has an incredibly beautiful Substack, much of which is free, but I am a monthly subscriber and that money is money very well spent. She has some incredible Q&As, some incredible audio files of her written work. And she also has a really robust community within the comment section of discussions around everything from marriage to food storage, to sovereignty. And so I, I highly encourage you to jump on Substack and find her work, especially as many of us look to get off of platforms like Instagram that have a lot more censorship with them. And so I thought I'd read a little bit of one of her first pieces from last year that I love because it addresses... This, this little nugget of truth and how that feels. So this is from her essay entitled, Here for it All, Whether I Want to Be or Not. When I'm in nature, I see all around me the thing I cannot find in man-made systems of commerce and controls. I see truth. I see raw, unadulterated, unconcerned truth. I can retreat into the bosom of the forest and just observe with humility as all of creation teaches me. There's never any promises of blissful comforts in exchange for my cooperation. I am not offered protection from her wildness and danger if I remain quiet. There are no bargains to be made at all. It's a take it or leave it proposition. Beauty and horror, peace and fear, acceptance and challenge all of life into death and back around again. And of course, you could remove nature from that paragraph and replace it with us, with our bodies, our wondrous autonomous selves, but there really is no need. The more truthful approach is to understand that the words are interchangeable as they stand. There is no division, no me, no you, no me, no individual tree. We are all enmeshed and entwined in this wondrous dance of life and soon enough, the mysterious dance of death. One of the things I love about reading is that oftentimes we find in the words of others a vehicle to bring us back home to ourselves. It's the same thing I love about podcasts in many ways, that through the sharing of our own stories that we often find what is true for us and a sense of ourselves in the context of listening to others. But I find I've found this throughout my life in literature, in nonfiction and and in the works, whether they are essays on Substack or books bought at a thrift store of others that I get to come home to myself and I get to come home to ideas that might not have found root in other avenues. And so I view the words of others like little wondrous seeds. Sometimes they are seeds that plant an idea that begins to grow within us, like the one that was planted in me many, many moons ago around farming when I was a, a an early teen. And sometimes they're breadcrumbs that lead us back home. And so I think that Tara is one of those people that is scattering those seeds, is leaving those breadcrumbs. And I encourage you to find and enjoy her work to its fullest. We have just a little bit of house accounting to do before we dive into the podcast with Tara. One of those things is just to let you know how grateful I am that you tune into this podcast every week. It just floors me that you keep coming back from more and I am just so heartened to explore these guests and these concepts of mind, body and soil alongside each and every one of you. I am just really appreciative and really floored that you're here and that we're building this little community together. If you have enjoyed the podcast and you feel called to leave a review, either stars or a written review on Apple Podcasts, this really helps other people find these stories and find these interconnections between mind, body, and soil that I feel like a lot of us are really seeking. And so I just would deeply appreciate that if you are feeling so generous. Without further ado, I'm not going to dilly-dally on this one, even though I already have dilly-dallied. I just want you to hear this incredible interview. So without further ado, Tara Couture. It just always, it always feels jarring and like the most, the most unnatural
1: start. <laughs> it's
0: like the robot enters the room. <laughs> yeah, I think, so I kind of like to hit record before and just kind of ease it a little bit. Um, but I actually, actually wanted to start with this idea of preservation i know i'm catching you right at the peak of the season which i'm so honored that you would give of your time in that space and i was thinking about preservation and sometimes when i'm when i'm thinking about these things one of my favorite things to do is to look up the dictionary definition of a word that i use all the time and i find that it often sheds a new light on the weight or the meaning of the word and when i looked this up I found above the idea of the preparation of food for future use, I found this definition. The activity or process of keeping something valued alive, intact, or free from damage or decay. And as I was preparing for this interview, and I spent so much time just reimmersing myself in all of your writings from Substack and some of your older Instagram posts and listening to your, listening to your writings on Substack as well. I think a lot of themes emerged in some of my questions around this idea of preservation, not just of food as we go into, you know, freezing and canning and making jerky, but also the preservation of skills, the preservation of ways of life, the preservation of how we view men even. And so I just wanted to start off with this and to see if you had anything to say about preservation.
1: Oh, I love that as a theme. It's beautiful. And I guess, I mean, I've never thought of it that way, but I guess that's a lot of how our lives are sort of centered around that theme, really, when I think about it. But for us, it was a reclamation, like reclaiming that which we wanted to preserve because it wasn't passed down to us you know I think there was I think that's a, a really common story is that we've all had to sort of reclaim a lot of those skills and ways of being and maybe untangling from implanted ideals or values or principles of figuring out what's our what is ours and then the idea of giving that to to like our children to be able to say you know maybe the mainstream sort of like this collective idea of what is success and what is a good life and all these things maybe there's something more than that so it's a I'm gonna think about that more Kate because it's a really beautiful way to um to really nicely orbit all these ways of being around is that word of preservation, it's beautiful. Thank you, I've it's I been
0: thinking about that a lot as, and I love the way you said that, this, as we sort of untangle all of the, the social programming that we've endured and I think as a lot of us come back to the idea of farming as as maybe first generation farmers, that you're right, it's not just preservation, but it's reclamation. Of of something, either something past or of of a new paradigm shift, and I think that reaching into that place where you're the process of keeping something valued alive, and and that that is very much what I want for this next generation. And I think about I think about that a lot as we hit you know we're in August and and it is the season of preservation. And there's something about this this august and these harvests going into it that feels a little bit heavier for me than it has in the past there's just a weight there as i look out at my birds and what i have to feed my family and our community through the winter as we kind of go into into the great unknown i mean we're always going into the the great unknown but this feels Mm. this feels heavier
1: Mm, heavier in what way
0: i think that It feels like there's a shift afoot. Mm -hmm. That there are food shortages and the way that I see society shifting and wanting to go back to this place of something simpler and something more connected and wanting to preserve that for life as life barrels towards whatever it is, the singularity or this you know technocratic nightmare, (laughs) this desire to to preserve. A way of living, and not just the food that we're putting in our freezers and our pantries.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel that too. It's a hard thing to sort of nail down because there's all the, you know, talk of food shortages and the reports of this and people saying that. But for me, there's almost this energetic, shifty heaviness thing. It's that's why I was asking you what that feels like for you because it's a hard thing to really quantify. Uh, yeah. With words, it's, it's, it's just palpable to me. It's like, yeah. um,
0: Oh, I don't know if it's muggy there. We're not very far oh, it's, apart. It's, it's so muggy, muggy today. Oh, yeah, And it's almost like that first breath. Like when you walk out the door and you hit like the, the full blast of mugginess and you take that breath in and it just has a different weight and texture mm-hmm. to it.
1: Mm-hmm. It's,
0: it's the energetic equivalency of
1: that. Yes, it is. And it's so challenging to be able to to have that very visceral sensation. It's very tangible. And to have to try and share that with people who aren't quite getting that in, that, in the same way, who aren't experiencing it in the same way, where it's almost like uh, you need to present a list of facts, or you need to present the evidence of something. And it's such a a weak measure compared to just that imagery you just gave of walking out and taking that breath and there it is, you know, to that visceral experience of it. And I think that if people, you know, because of our disconnection to to what's going on and the messages that we get from all around us, from creation, that because we're cut off from that, we look for like give me the evidence, like, let's see the facts and what's the economy saying and all these sort of things. And it can be so easily falsified what's going on. And I don't know, I just find more and more, I mean, over the last few years, I just, I don't, I don't, I have no media source, like, you know, I get little bits from here and there, but I feel more connected than I ever have. And I feel more in touch with truth in a way that I, you know, if people will say, Oh, did you hear there was, um, you know, this plant burned down or they're going in this direction. I'm like, yeah, I, I get that. Cause it, it's all around us. Like it's the stream of information that is so much more powerful and tangible. But like I said, it's, uh, It's almost like we're living in an alter universes, you know, the people when you're when you're really disconnected from from what's going on on a sort of well, I think that's because people are globalized. Like we talk about our food system being globalized, but people's minds are globalized. Like, you know, it just we're we're blown apart and we're like keeping tracks of all these things that are going on and no one knows what berry is blooming uh, a block away from them in the bush. Like it's, it's, it's an incredible campaign, an incredibly successful campaign that keeps people from like actually being powerful within their local systems. But I think that's just, anyway, I'm getting off topic a little bit, but it's just that connection to that. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm with you. I feel that sense, too. And I feel like right now, like we had uh, my husband, Troy, and I had talked about, uh, you know, we've been at about 85, 90 percent, I'd say, of our food has come from our farm with just little niceties, you know, like the little luxuries, coffee, we quit coffee, but that's a sad story all (laughs) in (laughs) itself.
0: I quit coffee too. I quit coffee too. Yeah. I've lived through that sad story.
1: (laughs) But like, I mean, you know, and like vanilla, like all those really nice little things. Yeah. Lemons. And, um, I actually have a woman from California mailing me a box of lemons as a barter to one of my Substop subscriptions. <laughs> so <laughs> I hope they make it through customs because um, I have beautiful plants. But yeah, just to be able, like for this year to be like 100% off our farm, like blow away the chaff. What do we actually not need? And let's see 100% what it takes to just, you know, eat completely from our farm so everything had to be amped up. Like, you know, it's not like I run out of winter squash and I can go to my friend and buy a box of winter squash because she has a bunch. I'm just not, we're not doing that this year. Or like, you know, salmon, like salmon's not going to happen. There's no salmon, right? (laughs) So just those little things that are like beautiful nourishing foods, but it's also been you know, you would think being maybe 85, 90%, it's just that mental uh security of thinking, well, you know, if this fails, there's this, or I can go to this friend or that farmer and get, that. Uh, there's not going to be any of that. So yeah, just, I've really been, um, you know, we had to expand our garden and I've been preserving a lot more. I usually preserve a lot, but I'm doing a lot more or harvesting more animals. I mean, it's, yeah, so- I
0: lot. love th- I love this. And I love that you're embarking on this. And this was on my list to talk to you about is, is that extra 10%, because I think that extra 10%, it is, there's a, there's a sense of security in there
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, and a sense of, I mean, when you, when you take on everything, it's a lot of responsibility and the buck really stops with you. If something, if something fails to grow, if some, I know we had a bunch of winter squash that didn't germinate this year. And, and, and so that, that problem then becomes your problem for the winter. But I think that it also, what a way of connecting. And I think you said something earlier about we've become much more quote unquote connected And we are more disconnected and scattered than ever in the globalization of our brains. And so to bring it back to that level of responsibility and connection that it's just your family and the food that you can grow on your plot of land and the animals and and everything.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm really, you know, from a nutrition perspective, because I know we both have backgrounds in nutrition, but I'm really kind of... Jazz about what that will be like in my body, like to have that total resonance with no interference or interruptions. I think that's going to be really interesting, you know, that the animals that we're eating were born here, eating from this soil and this grass and living here. They didn't, I didn't buy them as calves. I didn't bring them in as feeders. Everything that we eat was born here. So it's actually their parents had the nutrition of these fields and this water and, you know, lived under this sky, went through the same cycles of life that we did, the spring, summer, winter, you know, everything that we experienced over the years that our bodies were forming to be, you know, overturned and bring us to where we are now, they too experienced that exact same thing. Like that just kind of blows my mind a little bit, you know? And it's just, I also the idea of, I mean, obviously when we eat a steer, we're eating a steer with the organs from that steer. And that too, is just like another level of resonance. Like it's just this, I'm really, and maybe, maybe I won't notice much, but I, I think I will. Like I, I, I like to be tuned into those sort of higher levels of of really being connected in that really deep and, and way that just brings, I don't know. I, I, I guess I've never been a hundred percent. Like eat, we have never a hundred percent eaten off our farms. So I don't know, like maybe it is that, you know, when I eat squash from somewhere else or I eat the salmon or maybe, you know, maybe eating these other things that would never typically be available here. Like we eat um, seaweed that we bring in from the East Coast. Like maybe those things that we all think have like nutrition are actually a disruption. So anyway, it's just one of those things that I'm pretty pretty excited to see if it makes a difference, what happens. Yeah.
0: I'm, I'm really curious to see what you feel and how that resonance plays out. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking about not only are you receiving the same sunlight and you're on the same land and the same seasonal shifts and the same nutrition, but you've also been there nourishing that land with the, the, parents and the generations of cattle that you've had and the blood and the manure that has gone back into that and all of these nesting layers of connection the sort of like fractal layering of connection that you've been there feeding the soil and it's just it's almost like a matryoshka doll of cycles and interconnectedness and yeah
1: and it's uh- to me too, there's like a reciprocity and just like in what you're saying too. So yeah, I've been there, you know, I move them every day. I water them every day. They know me, I can scratch them. They, you know, but there's like, when we harvest an animal and that animal's life is sacrificed, is it not more reson- resonant that that animal is sacrificed to me? Like that, that animal that we're the ones that take that animal's life, and we're the ones that benefit from the meat that that animal's life leaves behind. And, you know, we've disrupted that all along our food chain. I mean, we disrupt. it's just uh, it's just so it's a disaster. Beyond. yeah, it's beyond but, and we just take. and there's no there's none of that interconnectedness at all. And, um, it's all, I mean, it's destruction and hellfire really is what it is, what it is. But I think that too is like, there's a rightness to that, that is, um, that we, uh, take out of the equation because again, it's like, how do you quantify that? How, how do you, if you're not involved in it, you can never quantify it. You don't have to see it. You don't have to think about it. So, yeah.
0: This is, I put at the, at the top of my notes here in all capital letters is the word rightness. And, and so I think that there is something about rightness and it is hard to quantify. And I was thinking about it because I had heard you talk a little bit about rightness on the, on Nathan's, we are already free podcast, but I also, I've been thinking a lot about rightness and where that lives lately and how we connect into that space and, I, f- I know that I feel, I feel rightness as something that flows sort of from below and above. And it sort of hits me right in my solar plexus as this sort of thrumming pulse. But learning how to feel that underneath all the noise of social programming and my upbringing and my own disconnection, the ways in which I, I am still learning to connect with this space, with myself, with animals. It's it's hard to uncover rightness, but I think that when we do and when we lean into it, there it leads us to where we need to be. And I don't know if that's intuition or truth or, or what that is, but I had on my 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 list of things to ask you like what does it mean to let rightness guide you
1: through life it it you know if there's one word that guides me us like my husband and i it is rightness and to me it's moving beyond my feelings moving beyond my ideas of what's comfortable Or um, what's safe and going beyond myself in a much bigger way to try and bring my actions into union with the natural world, which to me is where I find God is God and our creator, whatever people want to call it, but I say God. And it's, it is what elevated me out of a certain way of being, uh, that, you know, when I was younger and like you were saying, I was a product of a school system and beliefs and the media and whatever. And to excavate that into deeper meaning, I had to bit by bit sort of be willing to be brave enough to let these things go that felt like they were um, safe, but were really just a really neat and tidy container. And I realized that there was really limited growth within that container as long as I just did things that you know made me feel okay or did things that everybody else was doing and seemed acceptable and you know didn't challenge my beliefs or didn't didn't listen to other people's perspectives and ideas and I really you know when I look back at that I'm I'm surprised by, not surprised, I guess, but it's just amazing how being willing to challenge those things literally transformed my life in really big ways. And I, I, you know, was really blessed to have an incredible mentor who was a lifelong cattleman, but he really exemplified this drive for rightness above himself. Like, he, he put this drive for rightness above the comfort and the security of self and I it just I didn't I had never met anyone like that before and so humble to be so humble about it really was the authentic part of him was that there you can't you can't have this like um drive to be, you know, to be in alignment with the natural world and then be bragging to people about how in a lot, it just doesn't, it's not, it's just not authentic and genuine. And I'm, I was so hungry for the authentic at that time in my life. I was a lot younger and everyone around me just seemed to be doing the same thing and saying the same things. And, you know, your compassion was displayed by words that you use, but no one was really doing anything. And, and, um, that just kind of left me cold. And so I met this, um, uh, man who became my mentor. And, um, I could not wrap my mind around how someone that was so deeply connected and such reverence just reverence, like, I mean, just worship the soil, you know, and the sky, and would stop everything he was doing to point out a red tail hawk in the sky and tell me a story about them, like, and then go and take a gun and shoot an animal. It was like, how can these things be in union with each other? How can this person, and, you know, it's easy to say, well, he's he's all this but this he has this one trait that's really not but in fact it's the fact that he had that one trait that he was a lifelong cattleman that farmed thousands of acres of native prairie grasslands native prairie grasslands had bison roaming that we had to drive for over an hour to go find had cattle just moving through as close to what we could emulate you know before (laughs) before we started parceling off and stripping the land down. And that that he could be so intricately a part of that, like interwoven into that, and still accept and understand that he was the one who was gonna go out and shoot the animal and then bring it back to his abattoir and then beautifully butcher it. Like I had to, I had to be I had to untangle and be like, there's something that I believe that's not right here because I believe in him. And so that's where everything like sort of started for me. But that rightness, like that rightness was such an integral part of who he was. And it was like, I want that. I need to do that. That is That seems like a reasonable mission for a life is to just align yourself with rightness above self and it seems something worthy to dedicate yourself to in life. I think anyway, for me, mm. I,
0: there's so much there. And I, one of the things you said towards the end that as he, you know, this, this beautiful connectivity and then to go out and to shoot these animals and that, that maybe, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that initially felt like something, something sort of paradoxical mm-hmm. in this and I, I think, and I know I've I've listened to you talk about some about how you viewed death as a child, and I had a very similar situation. That I really wanted to avoid death. I was very afraid of death. It was very present in my childhood, and I I just wanted to eschew it, and it led me down a path of vegetarianism and a lot of a lot of different things. And I think that connecting w- with death's place in rightness and in and as a part of that cycle and and it's something it's a constant act right because i think that connecting with that piece you talked about going beyond what's comfortable and safe and that feels so far beyond what's comfortable and safe to us but that when you when you start to look at nature's little cycles that death is a really important part and it's you know it's this piece been playing with this idea that death is the place where one transitions into many, right? It's, it's where, where something goes out into the soil, into our bodies, and and just becomes all these different pieces. But I guess there's just a question in there about that paradoxical nature of rightness, and how you put that, how that became right again.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think everything Shifted the first time that I took part in an animal harvest, actually. And it was with a bison. And like I said, we drove for a long time to find them. And then we parked up on a hill and we watched them for a while. He loved bringing people up to see the bison, just loved it. And there was, you know, if there was one bull that was pushed out because you know the more dominant bull had claimed his harem he'd kind of be off in the side and Richard he was my mentor he would like to tell stories about you know the lone bull sitting there feeling sad for himself <laughs> or whatever <laughs> but you know if there would be an injury, you know and we would just watch them and Anyway, it was quite magical. But this on this one day on this animal harvest, you know, I was just like everybody else that had never been a part of that before. I was really, I was terrified. I thought there, it just felt wrong. It felt wrong to be there. It felt wrong, like to witnesses. But something pushed me to go, be there with him. I asked to go with him. I I used to go work with him on his farm whenever I could, and I. I had asked, but I was—I remember asking, thinking, "Am I out of my mind? Like, why would I?" You know, but it was what I said before. There was something he had that I didn't understand that I wanted to understand. And I too, yeah, growing up, had it. I was terrified of death and probably a a little obsessed in an unnatural, an unhealthy way. Let's say that. Um, you know, when people left, I was sure they'd die, and Mm -hmm. yeah, me too, me too so that's a that's a huge thing to overcome, and like for you to be where you are and for me to be where I am, something convincing, pretty convincing must have to happen in order to move beyond that and on that animal harvest he um had uh after i mean, he was you know he was lining up his sights on this cow, and I was there, and I remember my heart was pounding out of my chest and I had my fingers in my ears because, I mean, he was shooting a rifle right next to me. But I remember having my fingers in my ears and just all I could hear was my breath and like the pounding of my heart and the adrenaline was just coursing through me. And I was looking at him and I was looking at this animal and I I, I wasn't sure if I should be looking at either of them. And I was just in my head, I'm like, this is this is fucked up this is fucked up and then he pulled the trigger and um you know and then went ran up to the animal to bleed the animal out. but the second she fell, everyone in the herd just backed up, you know, startled from the sound and then came back forward and here's these huge beasts and he's there in the center of the circle of them and severs the arteries, and they're all standing around just watching, and there was such a profound sense of peace that I was, you know, I was behind him, and I thought, like, we're in danger. These are huge beasts, and they have horns, and there was just this dead silence, and we're, this animal's bleeding into this prairie, and he's there with his hands on her saying a prayer of gratitude and i just put my hands on her and you know like what i witnessed was that there was something transformative happening there and it wasn't the fading of a spirit there was an expansion of and it was all around us and i had these like beasts all around me in dead silence just watching and I had this man next to me, one of the most beautiful men I've ever known in my life, who I, you know, he's dead now, and I I miss him so much, and I loved him, and he's just one of my best friends. And um there's this animal who is literally taking up space, not receding. The st- Just expanding all around us. And it just moved right through me, like little invisible molecules, just all around us. And it was literally instantaneous where I went, oh, oh my gosh. Like, this is not a big black hole of ending. It is like, moving out of a container that we've been contained and in, into something so much more profound, of which I have no idea. I mean, I'm still limited in my capacity of understanding, but I felt that and I witnessed that. And from that time, that just changed everything. It changed everything for me. And, um, you know, since that time, um, Richard that he died and we had his family had a wake for him where they had him in a bed with a bison robe underneath him and he was there for a couple of days and we could go and just be with him and touch him and spend time with his body and that too we he was there and you know I I since experienced death in very profound and horrendously heartbreaking ways with the death of our daughter and i won't say that it's i won't say that there's anything beautiful in that at all and anyone that would say there is would be fibbing however she teaches me daily and she doesn't teach me by her memory she teaches me by her presence and um, she is profoundly around us and profoundly powerful in how she has expanded and our relationship is intimate and connected and I miss her terribly because I am a physical limited being but I know and she tells me that there will be a time you know when I'm not, and we can be um, in union again. And that is, that is like been just being able to move beyond my fear of death. And I think that our culture right now is manipulated so much by uh, our fear of death because it's been taken away from us and it's been held up as like the big wrong at the end. Yes. Yes. And it leaves us so vulnerable. The last two years is a great example of that. But bigger than the last two years is just people's limited experience of life in service of the God of safety, which does not exist. No,
0: no. And any anybody who says that it does, that's an illusion. I mean, it's it's an illusion. It's a lie. Mm-hmm. And we and want to it keeps us small and i think that our human nature is to want to be comforted because i think that from this container death does look like w- where something narrows and becomes a pinpoint and an ending and it doesn't look like this i mean your your beautiful explanation of this transformative expansion and i think that we're afraid of that abrupt ending into nothingness because we no longer can touch death and connect with it we don't have wakes where we can be with the body and spend that time and grieve grieve fully in those moments and all the moments after that we spend grieving when somebody goes and to to connect with that and i we just tuck it away in these little hospices and we tuck it away in our factory farms and and so that we can't see it and then we lie and say that this plant-based burger like that that's how we'll cheat death we'll cheat death this way
1: exactly yeah and how what a ripoff to us as human beings i mean what an absolute theft of our experience of what it is to be a human being like what you just said about you know we don't the the grieving We don't grieve. We don't grieve. We don't want to be sad. We don't want to be immersed in that type of pain. And you have to, if you want to have like overwhelming moments of peace and connection, you have to be willing to take it all. You have to have it all. You have to be, you have to be willing to be just flattened. With heartbreak. Sometimes people say to me, you know, I. I can't do that. My heart would break. And I'm like, yes. And then you, it would beat again. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, it does. And we live in that. We have to, we have to live in that or we don't, and we can numb ourselves. And there's, our world offers us countless ways to numb ourselves, you know, TV, wine, pot, whatever. There's a million ways. Everywhere you look. And that's what we're set up for.
0: Yeah. And I, and of course we want to avoid pain. I mean, that, that is, I think that is just the, the nature of being human. And I think that's something that we talk about is that if you're numbing those low, lows, if you're numbing that heartbreak and just the vast expanse of grief that it is to be human, then you're also numbing the, vast expanse of connection and joy that we are also open to experiencing. You can't, you can't only numb the grief without also numbing all of, all of that joy, all of that
1: connection. It doesn't work. And it's a, it's a bill of goods that people have been sold this like rabid chasing of happiness. Like it just, it, to me, even the word happiness, it's like you know, the fake icing on the grocery store cake, like what, what there are moments of happiness and joy, but what is the substance there? Like, what is the the stuff that really cares, carries you through and nourishes you? And for that, for the real stuff, yeah, you have to show up and be willing to accept what comes to you, even when it is the most painful, excruciating thing, and you think you cannot live through it. I mean, not anyone that has lost a child will tell you that. And, you know, when you do that, when those moments, like the simplest of moments, you know, a little goldfinch comes and lands on a thistle two feet away from you and just looks at you, it blows you open with its beauty because there's nothing, there's no defenses. There's just open, raw, gushing heart. And wow, is it miraculous that a little bird like that would be willing to share such a close space with me. And like me, little me, And you get to, you're not numbed to it. You're there. You sh- you're so when those little breaks of sunbeams come in and warm up all that pain, it just feels exponentially more connecting and beautiful and hopeful. But if I'm not there, if I shut that all down, I'm shutting it all down. There's no magic filter that lets you get rid of the bad and keep the good. That's a lie. It doesn't work that way. Mm
0: -mm. You need, you need both. And you actually, you wrote something that I wrote down. I wrote a lot down, but you wrote death walks alongside us all a wise friend with lessons, befriend him and he will teach you, remind you there, he will say, that's really something. Why waste your time on that? He will challenge. Slow down, he whispers. You just missed the most important thing of all. And I think when we invite in a relationship with death, and I think there's a lot of death that we don't invite in also, but when we invite in this relationship with death through our food, I think you begin to crack open a little bit of the container that's holding you in and keeping you apart from that vast expanse of those moments where you're next to the goldfinch or no, I sat with I sat with one of our goats that we had to bottle feed last night and just thought about the there's this little goat running up to me, her her little tail wagging, (laughs) you know, just just thrilled to see me in the midst of a thunderstorm. And standing with me and looking out the barn as it just poured rain. And what an incredible thing to experience such closeness in that moment. And I think it does when we invite it in. And, and for me, a lot of that initiation beyond my childhood and beyond that immense fear has been through food. And this invitation of connection through raising animals that we would then kill, that we then eat. And it started to break through. And I feel like those little sunbeams that you talked about can get through maybe just a little bit more of this container of being human.
1: mm mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, same with me. Um, it was through food that... I came to farming and came to like these deeper understandings and this connection. And I guess that, you know, it's that, it's always like that place that I'm speaking to people that I know haven't maybe necessarily had those experiences. And so how to, how to connect them in that way. I mean, I, this is something I think about often, you know, I, I often have people say to me, you know, we I'd do anything to come and harvest an animal with you, and you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) first of all, it's very sacred for us, and I don't know that inviting a group of people into that is the right way to do it. But I also would, I think that. Their desire is genuine, a lot of them, and they do, and it would be a beautiful gift to give to people. So I don't know, there's just the way everything is set up, you know, for this this disconnect and for this separation. We're in a place where I think more people are wanting to come to it. And they do come to sort of these ideas through food and they want to have a more participatory sort of like experience. But I think that that's lagging behind a little bit where we're, where we need to go. So I guess the best I can do is talk about it. It's funny.
0: We've, my husband and I have hosted over the, I mean, we've been butchers for over a decade now and my husband and I have hosted a couple and attended Several different slaughter events with various people over the years. And so we have been both hosts and attendees. Okay. And I think that's interesting what you said, because I am also, I'm also reticent to invite it in here on our farm where it feels like this sacred and very intimate act
1: Mm -hmm.
0: of um, communion in a sort of way with our food and with our animals that we have loved. And at the same time, I know. I know how much I hungered for that early on. We actually, we raised chickens in a a city plot in Phoenix, Arizona, and processed a couple because I wanted that experience of of that and didn't know where to seek it out. And I, I don't, that, it's just interesting that you bring that up because I think that's a tough one. And I've attended a lot of them and I think they change something for people to see that, it, just like it changed something for you to be there in that moment and to get to witness that marks a shift. And maybe there should be more spaces where we can experience that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I was getting more involved with sort of getting mobile uh, They're illegal here and get, <laughs> getting them. Of course. Them, um, but it's, you know, it's That's a lot of moving into the fray of politics and stuff like that. But I think if we did have systems like that, it would, it would open it up a lot more for people. Um, and it's, I think Canada is a lot more regulated than, than you guys are. So, but we'll see. Maybe things will develop. But yeah.
0: Yeah. I think it, I mean, it depends on what state you're in here on how accessible that is. And it varies wildly from state Um, to state. Right. and Hmm. yeah i i think that when regulations get in the way of what is the natural state of human connection to our food i mean this would have for millennia and eons we would have been connected to hunting our food and to this idea of death from an early age and i think in many ways these regulations are part again of cleaving us from what is and has been forever part of the human experience.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I remember when I was a little kid um, going to the grocery store, this is the seventies, okay? And they had like little wooden cutouts of farm animals above the meat section, right? And it said pork and it had a little pig and it said beef and it had a cow. And I remember saying to my mom, why do they have a cow beside beef and a pig beside pork? And she said, because pork is a pig and beef is a cow. And I was horrified. I could not believe that all these years... The stuff that she was calling a pork chop was actually a dead pig. And the stuff that was beef was a dead cow. I thought it was such, I thought I was lied to because I'm like, why did they change the name of it? Why? Like I, to me, it felt like a big, you know, they were hiding that from me. And and I was completely clueless. Like it, it was just such a shock to me. And, you know, I have a friend who is a farmer, and she had, last year, she had some kids come to her farm, and she had this little plot of carrots, and got them to pull the carrots, and talked about the soil, and what was in the soil, and she said that probably 80% of the kids started, like, grossing out, and freaking out that the carrot grew in the earth. They said it's in the dirt, and they didn't want to eat it, and they were turned right off the idea now that a carrot actually grew in the earth and that just like holy smokes we're in trouble like we're in big trouble yeah
0: yeah that's a symptom
1: that's oh, a, for I sure. mean
0: that's a symptom of so much. I mean it's a symptom of our disconnection and I think it's a symptom of our our desire to sanitize everything including and i think there's some wisdom in your younger self including language in many ways that we want to sanitize our language around death and eating in a way that makes it more palatable
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and around farming and we're so disconnected that we don't know that a carrot grows in dirt and that dirt is what inoculates your body with all of the bacteria of exactly where you are in the world, that it's a a perfect system of turning the soil from Mother Earth into the soil of our bodies.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: And I think connecting children and the next generation is even more important than connecting adults too. That that we grow up knowing at least that a carrot grows in dirt.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, I can fall down a bit of a hole getting into that (laughs) because I, I, it's worries me how disconnected I see a lot of young kids are now and where they think their food just comes from the grocery store. And, um, you know, I think that they're ripe for the picking of these megalithic corporations that are trying to sell them laboratory meat. And like what we were talking about earlier is this idea of a death-free life, you know, that we're we're gonna just sustain ourselves on something that, you know, causes incredible destruction to our earth, but, you know, they can hold up a picture of a dead cow and say, but it's not this. And so everyone thinks they're doing their part I mean, that's why I think it's, like, so important that we continue to speak. Everybody speaks up courageously about what's going on and at least has a modicum of, like, understanding of of just the natural cycles of nature and how, you know, cattle are not destroying the earth. I love having people here, um, you know, that I can walk them around our, you know, We have about 100 acres, and we live on the Canadian Shield, which is just this mammoth rock that goes across a big chunk of Canada. And it just means we have really shallow soils. So do we. And... Yeah, it's a challenge with fences, isn't it? We're on shale.
0: We're on, <laughs> okay. We farm rocks. We just live on a rock.
1: <laughs> yeah, <same here. laughs> yeah. But it's like, um, you know, we, um, the biodiversity here is just gorgeous. And there's no way I could grow a hundred acres of soybean or corn or any of these like commodity grains in order to make a patty of like, Year of this meat, uh, pretend meat. Um, there, I mean, you would literally have to destroy my entire farm. You'd have to raise it all. You'd have to bring in like soil from, I don't know where you're getting it from. Um, you know, you'd have to pump everything through with fertilizers and you'd kill just the abundance of life here, the beavers, the bears, the coyotes, the, like, uh, all the migrating birds that live here. We have a blue heron rookery, like, behind where they come to have their babies, like, gone. The soil microorganisms.
0: I mean, all the way down, so much death, untold, unfathomable amounts of death.
1: Absolutely. It, It would just, it's gone. And for what? I mean, just I think this is where, you know, the, the power, the power to tell a fable, which is what these companies are doing. They're selling a fable based on people's ignorance of actually what it means to farm something or what it means to grow food. And they're just, they're monopolizing on that. And and so I think that You know people like you and people that are like these small farmers and farmers that are doing things you know regeneratively or whatever are just it's an important it's an important story to share with people and to show them how much life is being preserved by fitting into these natural cycles that exist they exist because our world exists. It, it is, this is life on planet earth and we can fit into that. We don't have to freaking override it and destroy it and make up a whole new system and pretend we're God. It's not gonna work. Um, yes. But, <laughs> I just, I mean, to be able, you know, and I'm, there's a farm that's about 50 kilometers north of here and they do feeder cattle. I think they're about 40 acres and it's 40 acres of pure crap. And then the cows are standing up to their knees and crap and they get, you know, their feeders in, they, it, no need for grazing because there's nothing to graze. And they just put these big bunkers out and, you know, they're giving them their ration and they get them fat enough. And then they go to the, to the um, feedlot, their final feedlot. And it's such an awesome example of a broken system there's no life there it's like a moonscape you know and i see these black cattle with no shade and i don't know what the temperature is there but it's like 30 35 celsius here it's it's scorching hot the humidity is through the roof and you know there's nothing happening there there's nothing happening there but ushering in death as quickly as possible for these animals
0: and there's no flow there's no reciprocity all the Nothing. things that you've spoken about prior to this there's none of that flow of that biodiversity and the the plant life that the animal is consuming and all of these different weavings in and out that are inherent to something being in its rightful place in nature i
1: i it's it's sterile it is and it's the same thing it's that mechani- mechanistic sort of like Attitude towards our earth as a whole that we do with our bodies, right? It's that still we're going to take, we're going to specialize in this one piece and pluck it out and we're going to deal with that one piece and not worry about the whole because as long as we get this piece right, it'll, it'll all, the next person worries about the next piece and the next piece. You know, my husband was in medical school, this is like 15 years ago. And we went to a friend of ours was having, um, uh, open farm day and he was this old character. He was like a lifelong biodynamic farmer from Germany. And he was like walking us through and he's brought us to his compost pile. And he's like, just inhaling this compost pile. He's like, (laughs) this is life, you know, he's just like, he's such a character, but we were and he was talking about all these things. And my husband just looked at me and he said, this is exactly like the body. Like it is literally our creator just overlaid and overlaid and overlaid the same systems because yes. it's life. Yes, All of life is just, it's just, we're all sort of layered in this beautiful way using the same sort of systems and the same dysfunction comes in every system, right? When you isolate and pluck out one piece, you have destruction. It doesn't work that way, but we do it again and again and again. Now they're growing flesh in, out of a cell in a, you know, in a in huge incubator of, oh geez. And yeah, so it's, um, and it will not. It it won't work. They may get it to uh the grocery store, but to to take something like that. You can't and put it in your body is just an abomination.
0: I think you spoke about this idea that I love this as above, so below, what we have done to the the human gut we have done to the soils. The fertility in our soils reflect perfectly the fertility in humanity it's declining. It's not thriving. And I think that so much of that really is owed to this reductionist Cartesian view that, that we just have these parts of the whole and forgetting that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, that we can't just pluck one thing and have that thing function or exist because it can't, it's connected to everything else.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about wanting to chase happiness and let everything else go. I mean, we do this all the time in every way. We just think that we can, we do it in relationships with each other. We do it like in in, in our whole approach to life. We think that we can just deal with the peace and disregard the whole and like it's, we are, we can just look around and see where that's got us. So.
0: We are the environment. We are the whole, we can't super impose ourselves on top of it. And I think that's a lot of the, and I'm going to kind of transition here. We'll see how gracefully I do it. I think that's (laughs) some of, (laughs) I think that's, that's some of this idea of, "Mm, Focusing on carbon or focusing on the environment and deciding that we'll pluck this one thing cattle, that that's, that's what's at fault. That's what's at play. And we'll just, we'll just pluck that out of the system and then everything will function. I don't know what people think, but I I wrote down something that you said because I've been thinking about this a lot. And we talked a little bit about the regulations in Canada that don't allow for mobile abattoirs. And I think there's, it's, it's a real mixed bag here in the States that allow for that. But I think that in Canada, you see perhaps the most stringent food monitoring and regulating uh, in, in the world, arguably, and I, I wrote down something you wrote that I loved, which was, we're not concerned about our b- ability to feed ourselves. We're concerned about our freedom to feed ourselves. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about this because this is part of what's weighing heavy on me, That's part of that muggy, deep, heavy breath of air that I take this season of processing as I watch what's happening in the Netherlands and in New Zealand and Ireland and... Uh, you've talked about the census, the censuses, censuses? I don't know what yeah. the plural of that word is, the census that they're, they're census. conducting. <laughs>
1: um,
0: in Canada, you know, how many animals you have
1: and how many vegetables you have and what you're doing? Yeah, the um, there's something happening there. We used to get, um, so we've been farming for about 12 years now. I received one census in that time and I got one two years ago. I got another one this time. And when the census came, we started getting phone calls on both my husband's cell phone and my cell phone multiple times a day. It was truly harassment. It was truly harassment. And then we got a letter saying that we would be fined and that it was illegal not to fill out our census. And they sent us another one. And on the top of it, It was quite different than other ones we had received where it said, this is your biannual agricultural census. And I'm like, oh, well, that's sneaky because it never used to say that. And so I contacted a few of my farmer friends and I said, are you getting this census thing? And they said, yeah, which is strange. But the questions were everything from, do you have birds? What kind of birds? Oh, you have turkeys. Then that opens up a full, like sort of like slow chart of how many turkeys were the turkeys born on your farm? Do you hatch out your own turkeys? How many pullets do you have? How many pullets do you have a year? Where do you buy your feed? Do you have feed? You know, and then it was the same thing for every single animal. Do you have pigs? What type of pigs? How many pigs? Where do the pigs oh, live? Tara. Uh, oh, it's very concerning. That it's is very concerning. Yeah. So um, and then, you know, what do you feed them? Then of course, and then there's the whole thing of like if you have vegetables, how many acres, how many square footage? Um, you know, do you sell them? Where do you sell them? Like in Canada, I mean, in on where I live in Ontario, I can't even go to a farmer's market and sell eggs. It's illegal to sell eggs people have to come here to buy the eggs. And I mean, raw milk is so illegal in this country. It's, it's, you guys look like you're like (laughs) without regulations at all compared to us.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. They send SWAT teams in Canada for, for
1: distributing raw milk. Yeah. It's crazy. So I'm really concerned about what, You know, because I'm not sure if you heard, but like, you know, talking about the Netherlands farmers, Canada has now announced the exact same regulation that sent them into protest with our, with our prime minister with reducing these fertilizers. And look, I am not a champion of like these types of things, but this is, there's a bigger issue here. (laughs) Yes. And uh, that's not, this is not the objective with what they're doing. I mean, last year they said they were going to stop selling pickup trucks. Well, that's a whole class of people you're taking out of the equation because, uh, a lot of our friends are tradespeople. We need a pickup truck to do what we do. So do um, we? Yeah. So, um, this is, you know, to me, it feels very much like a class thing. Um, you know, we just invested, I think, what was it, eight million or 80 million taxpayer dollars in the biggest cricket factory in the Western hemisphere in my province. Yeah, our taxpayer money went to a cricket factory in Southern Ontario. Oh, so this really tells you, um, you know, where we're going and whose dictates our, our government is following. And so it's, it's a worry, but what do you do with that worry? Like, I mean, are they going to start? I was listening to something the other day and they were talking about owning land. And I think it's a lot of people's objectives. They very well could tax us out of our land if they want to. I mean, there is nothing that's for sure. There's just nothing that's for sure. So I have to operate in a way of faith and hope and goodwill and try to do what I believe is right. And I have to not ignore the fact that this could all be taken away, but I have to do that despite of the fact that there's nothing concrete there's nothing absolute in this life so can i still there's There's no safety there's no there isn't but so what you can't let that no stop you from doing these things but i also am a huge believer in civil disobedience so am i and so that's do i need to fill out the census? as well (laughs)
0: I think, I think we've seen that Canada is excellent at protesting
1: and seen some of
0: the pretty good, pretty good. I think they, I think they, they put the rest of us to shame in a a positive (laughs) way um, uh, this past winter. And so I think that's hopeful, but I also think that that's one of the reasons that I want to talk about this more, because I think that the more that we understand that the many, I mean, the few people that want this, that want, and I have no idea what they want. I, my husband and I talk about this a lot. I cannot really fully wrap my mind around their motivations uh, because there's, there's so much money there. I mean, maybe it's more money, but I think that there's something more insidious than that. Mm -hmm. I think that there's, there's a desire to, to break us spiritually, to separate us from, from everything that we know, and that keeps us connected. And in this space of having those high highs and those low lows and mm. this aspect of numbing us. And I think that when, when people control food, you control bodies and you control minds. And Absolutely. and I think that that's, that's an entry point. And I often, I often come back to this idea. My, my father was a, strange man he grew up in the depression during the dust bowl in the south and in oklahoma here in the united states and he used to say that when when bongs are outlawed only outlaws will have bongs mm. and i i think about that i think about that with beef sometimes when
1: yeah when cattle are
0: outlawed only outlaws <laughs> will have cattle
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> True. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we've literally talked about, you know, what is we're having those conversations like what is our bailing point like I know so many people over the last few years that have moved to like Costa Rica or moved to like places in the US that are a little more um you know red states i guess you guys call them um Mm -hmm. but you know um that seemed to but it just it all feels sort of tentative to me you know like who's to say like where's you know and is there something that you'd be willing to just stay and fight for too i mean i i don't know i i don't know what the answer is to that but they're not taking my cows. I'll just say that. <laughs> I'm keeping those. But um, do they need to know if I had uh, three calves this year? No, I don't think so. You know, now, because I really think what this is setting us up for is taxation on cattle, especially like I think that will be the first step. I think they're going to try, you know, whereas in the Netherlands, they're offering to buy their land, in other words, steal their land you know that is ominous as hell it is i mean that is scary and you know here i think it's going to be taxation because that's what our country does taxes everything and i think that will drive a lot of people out and then i think it's going to be sort of penalties based on what you have there they a few years ago on our province they gps'd all the wells And then made it illegal to dig a well. So if you drill a well, it's done through a company which by law has to report the well. And now they're talking about, well, is the water your really your water? Like, So that's, I think, going to be the next frontiers water i know some of your states i think already do that with rainwater collection or something yes
0: they do that's it's part of the colorado river and the colorado river throws. there's a seven state agreement for the way that the colorado river flows and what that means is that the rain that falls in colorado for example is bound for the agricultural use in California. And so if you collect that water, you prevent it from going into the Colorado River,
1: which is then...
0: Prevent, you know, which is technically California's water, depending on the allotment. And so it's about, it's 18 million acre feet that's allotted, though they estimate the flow of the Colorado River is more like 15 million acre feet. And each state has their allotment and that has to be divided between both uh, urban and rural use. And so as you see these big cities pop up in very dry and arid places like Utah or Arizona, all of that water is being used in this 100-year-old agreement between those states. And so you can't collect rainwater because it's technically California's rainwater.
1: Oh, wow. I did not know that fed into California. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Huh. Yes. So keeping a, a couple rain barrels
0: of water is illegal. It is. It is, and that is that is not your water. It has already been agreed to. It has already been sold to someone else. And I, I agree with you. They're actually that same well situation. They're talking about that in California, and I think that water will become a very heated issue. I I come from the west. We live we live in on the New York Vermont border now, but I'm from Colorado, and I think that that will increasingly become part of the conversation
1: hmm. Yes, I think so, too. And I think a lot of I think the reason that Canada is um, exponentially more regulated than the United States is because we have supply management. And we have big organizations that control things like dairy. We have the turkey farmers that control the allotment of turkeys. We have the chicken farmers who control how many chickens you can raise. So I can't raise 150 birds. I'd be, uh, that's illegal. I have to apply. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, um, I, can't I didn't raise...
0: realize.
1: Oh, I can't. <laughs> Hey, I can't raise 51 turkeys. That's illegal. I can raise 50 and under.
0: Because there's a, I don't know how to say that. There's There's a a monopoly. There's a turkey monopoly.
1: That's right. That's right. They're called the Turkey Farmers of Ontario. And a few years ago, they tried to get a bill passed that it would make it illegal for us to raise turkeys outside full stop no turkeys being raised outside. And this is when, do you remember a few years ago, there was, um, it wasn't an avian flu, it was, there was another bird flu, or was it called bird flu, or was it something it else? It would have been bird
0: flu, there was H1N1, I don't, I, yeah, anyway, all,
1: yeah. They were using one, <laughs> they were using one of those and saying that the, because they raise all their turkeys inside, that it was the small farmers and homesteaders that were like going to kill their birds mm-hmm. that were so immunocompromised, obviously. And so they tried to get and they came pretty darn close to getting it made illegal to raise a turkey outside. Um, same with if I, you know, I have friends who raise turkeys or sorry, chickens, meat birds, They have to get, uh, they have to apply for a special permit and get uh, regulatory approval to raise meat birds outside under the artisan program, right? So it's monitored. (laughs) Oh, this is
0: insidious.
1: Oh, it is. It's, uh, it is. To, you know, and like our cattle here are all supposed to have radio frequency ID tags in their ears, you know, and like, but, and the dairy, the dairy board, of course, is the big mama of supply management. So, you know, you just simply cannot milk a cow and sell it into the system unless you get quota. And in order to get quota, you have to pay tens of thousands of dollars just to be able to have the quota to milk one cow. And then that milk is not owned by you. It has to go into a tank and it gets picked up and it gets put into the system. And then it's regulated to have, to make sure that every dairy farmer gets the same amount of money. And of course the dairy farmers love supply management. Dairy farmers in Canada are the richest farmers by far. They're millionaire type farmers. Fascinating. Um, Yeah, whereas you know, let's say me who hand milks some cows, I would never be able to. But what if I wanted to, let's say I'm a new farmer, I'm 25 years old, I want to milk 10 cows and sell them into the system, I have to be able to buy quota in order to get into the system. So unless my mom and dad can loan me a few hundred thousand dollars to get going, and then all the equipment and everything else, I would just have to be a millionaire. But what it is, is it's it's either passed down generationally, this quota, or the big megalithic farmers are buying up quota from smaller farmers as they're going down and we're getting bigger and bigger uh, farms. But this is, there's zero competition. It's why in Canada, a one pound block of organic butter is at $13 right now. Um, you know, we go to the States and see what you guys are buying for dairy. It blows my mind, like how the difference in price between what we would pay and what you guys pay. And that's because even imported cheeses get all of these taxes uh, levied on top of them to make them so that they're not as cheaper than the Canadian cheese. Not so it's com- very competing. protected market. Exactly. Yeah. But this is why we'll never have raw milk. This yeah. is why Canada can never have raw milk unless the quota guys, that the supply management decides they're going to sell the raw milk, and then we still wouldn't have it because it would never be locally for the people. Exactly. Yeah,
0: it would never be what you wanted and raised in the way that one might be looking for when they're looking for raw milk. I... Exactly just the way that you're speaking it sounds like a dystopian novel i knew i knew a little bit about canada and i don't think i i did not know the extent of it i don't know it now but it sounds wild and i mean it is the real centralization of farming that prevents people from accessing nutrient-dense foods and accessing connection too and i think I'm going to pull, I have a quote that you pulled about small farms that I loved because I, I love this idea. My message has always been that the answer to our mess is more small farms, small farms on every corner, cheese farms in every community, diversified family farms, each raising a bit of this and that. Small farms for raw milk and small farms for fresh lamb. Small farms for sweet summer produce and eggs. Small farms that care for the land, that know the land, that share the ethos of stewardship with the eater who is invested in their success. Small farms scattered about like stars in the sky, just as it once was. Many small farms in many small communities make nobody rich, but they do make people healthy and connected. And that's a serious problem. And then you go on to talk about it's a serious problem for all of the governing bodies that you just mentioned.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um you know where I live I can go for a walk and there's this old cheese factory and there's a a man that owns it now and he's using it he makes beautiful crafted brooms, handcrafted brooms, like traditional brooms and he does woodwork and stuff. But it's very common around here there's like tons of roads that are called cheese factory lane or you know and it they were the central hub of these farming communities where people would put their milk in those big steel vats and put them on the back of the buggy and bring them in and you know one person at one farm would be raising the pigs for that year and that would rotate to the next farm and there was like you know these big families and so it really was a community endeavor and um I think that's one of the hardest things right now what we were talking about before is this reclaiming of what was, but we're missing that piece of community and that integral sort of interwoven interdependence with each other. You know, it's, that's really, not only is it like the physical scattering of us and what, you know, some people, just because you live in the country doesn't mean you want to farm. There's a lot of people around here that just use it as recreation, but it's also our mindset of this, like, staunch independence like that is success right as I'm this like independent woman or I'm this independent guy I don't need you you know I don't need you I am you know I'm me and I can do it by myself and there's this real humbling like when you start farming and realize how unnatural it really is to be doing all this alone, it's, uh, it's too much for one person or two people or even three or four. It's too much. It's not how it should be. No, it's it's not, it's,
0: it never would have happened within, you know, even from the transition from tribal hunter gatherers into more agrarian agricultural sit in place villages, it would have been a village. And that interconnectedness that interdependence and i think that's really important to highlight because now we tout independence as the you know that be free and do everything for yourself it's every man for himself i think and that destroys that idea of what it takes. I mean, I was just thinking about this yesterday as a friend gave me 12 pounds of basil and she's pregnant and they run a vegetable farm and they don't have time. And I had a little bit of time to make pesto for all of us for the winter and for more people. And I think that that spreading of skills too, of skills, of time, of different phases of life would have been essential to what it takes to
1: raise food as a community absolutely and so how do you that's the harder part for me i think it's the bigger part like okay you can decide to do something for yourself but how do you start building that wider net of people and there's i know i think a lot of times as a remedy to that, a lot of us talk about community is in like this bigger community, you know, where, yes, I, I'm friends with lots of farmers or, you know, yes, I have like this bigger group of people, but there also has to be a smaller community too. Like I need to have the physical people around me connected too. That's important. And I think it's important as, you know, our our security um, is in question, <laughs> and and I'm not talking about building a fortification around us, but having that connection with each other is is really important. And so, how do we do that? That's oh, that's harder. It really for well for me, it's harder. And now I'm dealing with a whole broad spectrum of characters. That are actually outside of my community. I like to call my community is all these people I really like. Like, but my actual physical community, now I've got to stretch myself because it's not, we're so different. Yeah. Like, you know, and, oh, what, yeah. Oh, but it's important too. I think this is the original
0: intention of the word behind community is not what we curate but what we're, and I'm I'm just going to say what we're stuck with, right? Like the original idea of community is that we had churches and town halls and neighbors that maybe we agree with, and maybe we really enjoy, and maybe we don't. And I think that that rich diversity, you know, nature abhors a monocrop. And I think that that rich diversity really makes a difference. And I know that we've been here for two and uh, almost three years now and we've made a real effort to get to know all of our neighbors and, and to enjoy all of our neighbors for different gifts that they bring to the table, even though we might not be, you know, I mean, aligned in different areas.
1: Right. I think that's really such a gift. Like I, I, we have, some of our greatest friends would literally sit here cross-eyed at this conversation. Like, they'd be like, what are you talking about, Dara? But but we can like, you know, they are some of the truest, solid-hearted people I've ever met in my life. And I think that's important. I think it's really uh, important that we have connection and exposure to people that I'm, I'm sure they think the same thing of me. They probably think Tara is right out there, but oh, she's yeah. a good, she's a good one. Like
0: I they talk so. about <laughs> us like the weirdos. We're the weirdos, but they love <laughs> yeah. us all the
1: same. It's okay. Like it's okay. And I think that I think, so I think that's important because I think now today a lot of times yeah we do talk about community as that group of people we like but i think it's important that we actually involve the everyone around us for all the different um and all the different people i mean there there's you know we really lost that we've really created these like you said uh, these curated groups and we call them but it shuts us down to sort of growth in ourselves too and and in appreciating these these wild characters sometimes who are so different than us and can bring us like it's you know bring us to places in ourselves that, that are that help us to grow as well. And I don't know. I, I have to like to be honest, I have so much more tolerance for people that are like salty and rough and honestly authentic than I do for the well-polished phony like you know tightly managed human beings that people are trying to be to not say anything that will offend to make sure that they speak in the allowable lexicon of the day like the new speak uh, I just I'm I'm no, thank you. I just would give me your salt. I'll take it. Like. Yeah, we. Oh,
0: I I could not agree with anything more. And I think we have cultivated friendships here in the last three years that we've been here that would make some of my city friends. I mean, I don't even know. I don't even know what they would think about some of these wonderful humans that are a part of my life that are so radically different from me in the most delicious ways. And getting to know them and getting to spend time in their spaces with them and to hear their thoughts about the world and the journey that brought them to this space in life has been one of the biggest gifts and that I've received in this move. And I think in, in working in agriculture in general, where it can be a little bit of a, a patchwork quilt of misfit toys. And I think that our lives are better when they are more diverse. And when you find that what you have in common, that the politics and the ideologies, those are, those are the smallest things about us. And that what we truly have in common is care and time and love for one another, that I can sit and share a meal with my neighbors and their politics are completely irrelevant. What's relevant is that we're here together sharing, you know, in close proximity, our land and our lives.
1: Mm, That's so true. It's so true. I mean, I I don't think we ever talk about politics. You know, when there's something big going on, people roll their eyes and say something. But it's like, who cares? You know, we've got bigger things to talk about. There's a rock to move. What are we going to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've got important things to talk about here. Yeah. Yeah. And those
0: are far more important. And I think yeah. what makes us, what makes us human in the best possible ways. I love that. I told somebody, I told somebody last night that uh, all of our neighbors think that, and some of them are probably listening to this, but all of our neighbors think that we agree with them politically, but we never talk about politics. And I love this. I think it's so, I think it's so entertaining because our our neighbors are very diverse in that. And, It's just the coming together that I think we're so accustomed to it happening within a a curated echo chamber that we think that if we're connecting, then we must connect on our belief systems.
1: That's right. Yes, that's very true. Yeah,
0: I think this is a good place to talk about something that I have just been hankering to talk about with you, and I love watching you talk about this over the years, and that is your reverence for your husband and for your marriage. I was reading your your essay on bulls and men, and you said... To me, a good bull is very much like a good man. He is a gentleman inside of a contained power. It's a beautiful thing, really. A bull is representative of so much that is being held up as wrong with men, but in reality is what is most extraordinary. It is the steadiness, the centering and grounding force that their mere presence creates. And I have a, I have a lot of hills I would die on, but celebrating men and Masculinity and honoring their unique gifts that they bring to us in this world and in our marriages and our partnerships is one of them. And I I love the way that you speak about this.
1: Mm. Don't you love a good bull? Yeah, there's nothing better. There's nothing better. There's something about
0: their presence that just sings. And I think you relate in that essay, they bring a rightness
1: Mm. to the
0: herd. And Mm -hmm. I I see this with roosters too. We have a very special rooster named Dorian, and he, he just, he brings something into that space that is different than just a flock of hens.
1: Yes, it's true. It's like this, just this grounding force, like this um, lightning rod just drilled into the earth that can take it all and keep it. But I, yes, you know, it's, I've noticed with this like general theme of over the years of hammering down men and these traits of masculinity, in and this idea that to be a man, we have to be to be a good man, we mm. have to be an ally to the woman. Like, what the hell does that even mean?
0: We have to we have to be in service to to everything she says, every <laughs> want, every need. Yeah,
1: yeah. And you can see these young men that are being brought up with this this ideology. Acquiescing sort of to the woman, deferring to the woman. You know, so my husband works in an ER and he could regale you with so many stories of young men, you know, um, and I'm like late teens, early twenties coming in with their girlfriends or wives in some cases and how astonished he is by their women speaking for them all the time. They sit there quietly and the wife will tell the story and the wife will present and he'll have to keep saying, Okay, I need to hear from him. Like, thank you. I need to hear from him. And it's he said it's almost ubiquitous now, where it's just sort of you've got this guy sitting there quietly while, you know, the the story is being told on his behalf. And I think, I think what we're <laughs> This idea of, look, I could go full bore conspiracy theory here, because what is the motivation to weaken a man? Like, what is the motivation? We went from some abhorrent examples of bad men, just like there's abhorrent examples of bad women, We held that up as something like toxic and wrong, and then demanded that in order for them to rectify the situation, they had to be everything unlike this example. And to prostrate themselves at the
0: the feet of women and to change what it is to be a man, to change everything about them to fit into a feminine paradigm. Oh, and to
1: weaken. Our protectors, our space keepers. It's exactly, it's exactly it. And what did, and what has happened? It well, that's what's happened. <laughs> We've like, you, you, you either have. A man that's just being himself and fully in himself, or you have a man that is trying to figure out how he can exist in this world in a soft way or in a way that will help a woman to shine. That's not why a man is here. A man is to shine on his own. We can, we too. We don't, a man is not here as a frame this, you know, for our brilliance. They're here in their own right to be brilliant because they are brilliant. My God, like a good, solid man is what we need more of in this world, not less of. And the fact that this is being held up as in any way toxic and that what we need to do is diminish a man to make him more like a woman, because that is the only way you can make a man more like a woman is to diminish his inherent strengths and traits the gifts that he has been given. And that is not to say that we are not all on a wide spectrum. I feel like I don't even, I shouldn't even have to like qualify that. But of course we're all different and we are, we all have different strengths and we have different ways of being and that's completely fine. But to suggest that a man standing in his power is in a a symbolism of domineering toxicity and is in some way wrong benefits a very, uh, it definitely doesn't benefit women because so what, who is this benefiting exactly? And so I, I'm very suspect of t- this type of like ideology. I, I always have to wonder, how, how did this even get started? And now like, where are they trying to push this to? Because there's many women who will say like, you know, th- they'll trumpet this whole toxic masculinity thing. They'll echo it and say the same stuff. And then, you know, you see them in relationship and it's like, are you happy with that? Cause you don't look happy with that. I know Women are strong. Of course we are. But Absolutely, I'm telling you, like that has nothing to do with anything. I love what my husband brings to our marriage. I mean, he is a man and he is calm and centered. And exactly what I said, he is a gentleman that contains a power. And to me, that brings into our relationship such a deep grounding. I, I don't have those traits. I, I, I have smidgens of each of them, but I am not those things. And I am so grateful for what he brings to uh, our relationship. And he is so grateful for what I bring into our relationship, but I don't need another me. God in heaven, no, like, keep, I don't (laughs) want another woman, and he doesn't want, he's enough of a man, he doesn't need that from me either, and so it's this, we get to let that go, and we have this beautiful dance, where he does this, and I fit in here, and we just move through our lives, and our days, and our tasks, and are, and are able to just sort of, like, it naturally just, seeps out from each of us who and what we're doing and who's doing what and how each of those things fit into each other and it's so freeing. Like I don't need to do this and be all that and in order to prove my worth. You know, I thought that you oh, know in my me late too. teens and early oh me it's too exhausting.
0: I, I built a career on that. I built a career on wanting to be able to do everything, you know, the same and wanting to be able to be in that space and to hold space in that same way. And it, it's taken a real breaking down of that and a softening for me. That's and hard. It, and it's a good softening. It is hard. Yeah. It is hard. Yeah. And to, to allow each of our strengths to bring something different to the relationship and to shine. And you said something at the beginning, like your husband is a grounding rod. And, and my husband is the same. I mean, he just everything centers around him, you bring him into a field of animals, and they all center around him, like they all find calm in his calming presence. And I don't bring that to the table. That's that's not what my energy looks like. And I think learning to let some of this go that I have to be able to do everything that he can do and and to be on that same level and that we don't have some sort of beautiful natural division of what happens here on the farm that we both just kind of melt into. It's not even planned. It just sort of happens and we contribute to this household and farm economy with each, with
1: our individual gifts. Mm, That's beautiful. And I, I, that is the beautiful of our design. It's just the beauty of our design. And I'm so, I mean, you know, to be able to, to just let that other stuff, you know, talking about earlier about untangling, like that was a huge untangling in our marriage and in our early marriage of, I really, I mean, I was in the military for seven years. I was a soldier. I mean, a woman soldier has a lot to prove every single day. And, you know, before that I would, you know, I had a tumultuous upbringing and stuff. So I was always proving something. I was, I was hardened as survival you know that was my survival was to be hard and to to just do it you know and so when we were married it he he loved that drive about me but you know at a certain point there it became um a blockade to intimacy because it while i never said it the ethos is i don't need you i can do it myself and that to me is what success was like as a woman isn't that what we're supposed i don't need anybody i can do it myself and holy smokes like i really learned that 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 way of being was such a incredible way to fragment our relationship and to cause problems in our relationship because he well he. I mean what was he bringing to the table then? I can do it all myself. So of course he would feel undervalued because he was truly because I could do it myself and you know I, it was almost and it I would I think at the time I would have never seen it that way but in retrospect it almost is a competition like cuz we're both vying for the same position yes. all
0: the time. I feel that.
1: Yeah. And so that idea, like what you said, the softening, that for me has been some of the biggest work of my adult life in our relationship, absolutely, is that softening and reconsidering, like what is it exactly to be fully competent as a woman in the way that I want that to be expressed you know, I'm not going to wear the 1940s house dress and like all that stuff. Although I do like to wear a dress every now and then, but I mean, it's not these are ideals of like these stereotypical ideals necessarily, but the more that I could back up and allow him to have that space to step into, and he did, and he was able to just Do what he always did without me having to be in there directing and taking control of situations and letting that go. And the more he was able to express himself and come into himself fully, the more odd I was, like to just be like, holy smokes, like his, his attributes and his skills and his traits and his talents and his incredibly stable demeanor and Yes, like that gentlemanly approach to to everything in such a calm and rational way. It's like watching another creature. Like I'm like, how do you do that? You know, I just am like, uh, ah, and just like, <laughs> yeah. I think <laughs> that all wonderful. the time. It's stunning.
0: It's yes. stunning. I mean, it's like watching a Zen master or something. It's like watching, <laughs> uh, it's like watching somebody, I don't know, craft a blade. It, it is just this, this beautiful meditation on, on your, your loved one and, yes. and what they have that is so that you do not, I do not have those
1: things. I, yeah. 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 So I, it just, I'm just so grateful now is that is just being able to just be gracious with those, with what he brings into our relationship for the differences that he brings. And, and, you know, it keeps you, I think that gratitude keeps you focused on the right things. And I want him, I love who he is fully. And I want to be the person that allows that to happen. So in order to do that. I have to be fully who I am and let go of all these ideas, who I was told that I need to be. And it's just, you know, when you're able to start sort of coming out of that, out of what we've been told is a successful marriage, which is why I think there's so much divorce actually, is um, that we're able to develop this type of intimacy that is beyond, I mean, You know our level of connection to each other and our interconnectedness but our interdependence too is just the most profoundly beautiful gift of my life i'm madly in love with that man and i would go to the ends of the earth for him and i know he feels the same way and that is you know that's profound for me it's it i would do anything and actually the thing i have to do is just very natural and, and it was letting go of the stuff I was told to do.
0: Yeah. Which isn't, it's natural and it's not easy. You spoke about something that I think is so beautiful, which is interdependence. And I've, I've read some of your essays that included this idea that we're just going to be two independent beings, two ships, you know, passing in the night, uh, you know, that, that share a bed together and there will be no, no interdependence. And that interdependence is, what's beautiful it's it's where it's where yin and yang come together and it's i think it's where we find a lot of intimacy and connection
1: i think so too yeah
0: i think too one of the i love your tnt talks on your (laughs) Substack. i think they're i think they're great and you talked about the way that your marriage has evolved in how you communicate together and this is been with my husband. We've been married that whole time, but we've been together for 14 years this year. Mm,
1: Nice. Congratulations. And
0: the stories I love reading the most are those ones about the way that a relationship evolves. I think that they're beautiful stories because I think that a relationship is an organism that is in flux and flow and You wrote something that I loved that really resonated with me and how we've come to be, which is, well, I would make my list of needs and demands known. My husband wouldn't ask for what he needed. He wouldn't demand. He is always too willing, as most men are, to live on scraps in service to his family. It's easy to believe that a man needs as little as he asks for, but it's not true. And a day of reckoning looms, if you accept that falsity, because it's easier than focusing on yet another human that needs you, this is especially true when you have young children. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. And when I read that, I don't, I don't remember when you wrote this, but I started bringing in more acknowledgement of my husband and what he, just what he was doing, just just for being him, just for you know going out and doing chores on a morning that I was a little slow to get going or whatever it is that I, he fixes everything around the house and he takes care of all of us. He holds all of all of the parts and, and in a really beautiful and calm way that I could never juggle things. And just to begin to acknowledge him for that and to see him in his contribution. And... What happened when you started doing that or? I just fell more and more in love with him. Aww. I felt a deeper and deeper connection. And I think that that essay really called me to see my husband again, mm. to see him for what he, he is bringing to the table and to acknowledge and hear
1: him. Mm. It's interesting how many women will, when I talk about that, how many women will write to me and say, whoa, you know, I need to do this more, or I started doing this more and what a difference it's making in our relationship. You know, honestly, I think a lot of men are quite stoic. And I think a lot of them have been raised not to ask for much that, you know, and no, they don't, they aren't us, but we really don't need much prompting to let men know what it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, If we're feeling it, we're probably going to say it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just comes right out in that primary emotion and it's, yeah. and it's verbose and, you know, oh, not expecting sure.
0: that same,
1: uh, <laughs> that same verbosity in return. Right. And I have just, you know, over the years, when I see these things, first of all, you're right. It's, it's training ourselves to actually witness what they're doing, because they'll just plod along quietly. For the most part, I'm generalizing, but I think it's a pretty good generalization. And, you know, it's not very common for uh, your man to come up to you and say, hey, did you notice I just f- finished building the shed? Or did you notice? I I mean, it's just, it's not in their character. And to just witness and then actually say something, it makes such a profound difference, like, for your own level of appreciation, but just for them to to know that you have seen something that they've contributed, and that you're appreciative of it. I, I literally do that dozens of times a day, and not a single time is it false. It's not phony at all. You know, he'll go and carry two feed bags across the fields where the ducks are to fill up their feed. So I don't have to do it. And I'm looking at him with a feed bag on each shoulder and I'm like yelling across the field, you're fricking hot, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look at that beast carrying the feed bag. Yeah. Like, and he was kind of, you know, like, but to just have to just what is it? it's nothing for us to do that it's nothing for us to witness it and to see it and then to share that with someone i mean it's the least we can do but it's everything i think it's everything because yeah you could sit down once a month and write a letter or give you know and say thanks for all your help but being specific and like you know i wanted this rabbit palace built because i have this thing about meat rabbits. anyway that's a whole other story about my evolution with meat rabbits but i'm now into the final complete solution called the rabbit palace and so i told him what i wanted and he started going out in the woods and cutting down the trees and he has a mill so he's milling the wood for the and he's building it and every day it's like 35 it's so hot and humid outside and he's out there making this and i'm thinking never in a million years would that guy build a rabbit palace <laughs> like it's not his thing but he's doing it because it's important to me and that is profound like who else on this planet would do uh, that nobody no you know like so can i not just be in awe of that like of course and of course i should share that
0: And I think, oh I want, I actually want to hear about rabbits, but I think too, Uh, (laughs) that, I mean, that we're, I know we're, we're short on time, but, um, one of the things about that is that at the beginning of this, we talked about how women expect men to just sort of sit at our feet and, and worship us. And yet we won't give a modicum in return. Mm -hmm. And there isn't that idea to come back to that idea of reciprocity Mm -hmm. and that, that really makes, I think that makes a really big difference. And it was just, it was a really beautiful shift. And, and as well as your lens of allowing men to communicate how men communicate, not always expecting them
1: to communicate yes. in the same way that we,
0: that we share our hearts, that they share their hearts in a different way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. And why is our way better? Honestly, we are a little too much. Something We're a lot. Like yeah. women can be oh, a lot yeah. and we, much can too give, much. <laughs> we can really get sucked into these layers. And sometimes I get to a place and I'm like, what am I even talking about? Like at this point, I mean, it can just, and to have that simplicity and to have that, like my husband is very to the point, like he will share how so he mine. feels, but it's, it's more straightforward and that's a beautiful thing to interject with my verbosity and my, Mm -hmm. like, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, and sometimes I just think, you know, sometimes I can get tangled up in an emotion and the way that he sees it is just such a, uh, clarifying energy and, in how I'm like, okay, actually I could see it that way too. You know, I'm like, I'm a mom. I worry. And I'll be saying, you know, oh, our daughter, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he'll be like, you know, I think that the best we can do right now is just hold really good, like, feelings about it, worrying about it's not going to change anything. You know, I I have faith in her. She's always been dependable. He'll just say something very simple like that. And I'm like, uh, uh, you know, and in the moment, maybe I'm like, um, you know, I want I was like thinking if it was another woman, they'd probably get tangled up in that with me and, you know, amplify it. But it just like, just, you know, just that as a little example of like how he brings something that if I was asking him to be more like me, how would that have benefited me in that situation for him to like amp it up with me? So,
0: yeah. I call this circling the drain emotionally that i that my emotions want to spiral and kind of build and it takes Mm -hmm. me a while to get to the heart of the thing i have to kind of spin and spiral (laughs) and circle before i've made it into the center and oftentimes my husband will just sort of cut all the way through to the center you know Mm. like like a knife cuts through butter and in those moments a new path is shown to you.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Can I ask you? Do you, were you in a position ever with your husband where you guys went through a time where you weren't sure that your marriage was going to make it?
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We went through. We went through a really tumultuous time. About we owned a butcher shop together, and about three years into the butcher shop, it was struggling a lot financially, and. We were both very scared and we were both hurting and we were numbing a lot of things with a lot of, of different vices. And we kind of hit a point where, okay, are are we even going to do this together
1: anymore? Mm. And what made you continue? It's a good question. I mean, it was a choice
0: to continue. And I think that that's an important aspect of this, that as we were, Talking about, and I had, I had left the house and things, things were very, very tumultuous. And it was a decision that what we had built together and the love that we shared between the two of us was bigger than one of us alone. And that we wanted to be, to choose it, to choose it again. And we made sort of a a big choice, like we are, we are choosing one another and I don't want to oversimplify it there because a lot of work had to go into what happened next, but it was, it was a choice and it was a choice to love one another and to see one another better, to acknowledge one another, especially, especially on my part, just what we, what we just talked about and to be in service to that love that did feel
1: bigger than us in a, in a really great way. Mm. And do you think now, like in retrospect, that that time, without sounding too cliche, I guess, was integral to where you are now? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think our relationship is better for
0: the fires that we have gone through together and the the choice that we've made to continue on this shared path and shared journey and to continue to evolve together. I mean, I was... I was 20 when I met my husband and I I remember telling him at that time, like, well, this can't last because I'm going to be a different person when I'm 30. Mm-hmm. I will have changed completely. And right. to me, there's this aspect of relationship that is that evolution Together, you're both changing. And sometimes sometimes you're changing on parallel tracks and sometimes you're intersecting and sometimes you're moving away from each other. But there's this, there's this dance of desire and choice that keeps you
1: in love. Mm-hmm. I ask that because I think so many people stop at that point. Like at the point you and your husband were at, that's where we say, it's go your own way. You know, this isn't working for me. And it's, we can go our own way. And I think we need to have a lot of conversations talking, again, like how these things overlap each other earlier talking about like this idea of chasing joy versus feeling it all and getting into something that's a lot more um, meaningful and, and authentic in our lives. And I think relationships, we do the same thing with relationships when it stops feeling good. I mean, obviously, I'm not talking about destructive sort of abusive relationships. But I mean, like, you know, this idea that when we come upon this bad feeling, like it's we're infantile in our ideas around feelings, you know, like it's a bad feeling, even for me today to go and harvest one of my animals, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. And and we can apply that to everything that bad feelings does not mean something's wrong. It could mean something's wrong, but we need to develop that muscle a little bit more to be able to sit with that and see if this is something that is calling us to stretch ourselves into a new human being, into a different way of thinking. And um, I think relationships are just so beautiful. Our marriages are just so such an incredible t- way i don't want to say a tool but i kind of you know it's just such an incredible way for us to be able to like you said grow and expand and become different people while living these like integrated lives together and that often includes like where you come into these places where it's like hey am i going to like it's like sink or swim here because are we going to keep going through this right now you know, we had a time too at our first farm and we were selling grass-fed beef and we were selling like pastured pork and we were uh, breeding animals and we had three little kids and um, I was sick with Lyme disease for uh, really sick. So it was, you know, it was, uh, he was in the last few years, of he spent 25 years in the military and he was in the last few years that. So it was like, and same thing, financial problems, like all the whole thing. I think finances play a big role. But I remember we were in the garden and it was like, I don't even know. It was late at night and, you know, we weren't, we weren't taking care of ourselves. We were working till like midnight every night. And I just I That also uh, plays like, a role oftentimes. Huge, it's huge. Finances,
0: not taking yeah. care of yourself.
1: Absolutely. And- I was just like, I looked at him and I said, are we going to make it? And he said, I don't know. And he was always like, for him to say that, like, I'm allowed to be like, you know, say these sorts of things, but he was I'm always the, the solid one. Yeah. <laughs> he'd, be, he'd be like, of course, don't say that. Like, why would you say that? And he said, I don't know. And I was like, "Bo," you know, and it was like everything like from there, where we had to actually make that decision. And like you said, it is a choice. Like, is there? do we want to let go of, of this relationship? And I think when you have all those other elements involved and they sort of like infiltrate all these other feelings and soon you don't really know how you feel because there's all this stress and angst from all these other things. And it's easy because I think in our culture, we want to blame something. We want to find the smoking gun for something. And so we look at our partner and figure if we get rid of that, all these other issues will go away. And, um, anyway, I, I, um, like you feel like if that, that time now, I'm so incredibly grateful for it because it taught us so much about communicating, about appreciating each other, about being vulnerable with each other. Like that was a really big turning point for us at that point in our relationship. And, um, yeah, I just I, I I I would like for there to be more stories of of people that have been in marriages and that that can we can have these conversations because I think the reigning sort of idea around that is well what I just said her earlier which is just like you know if it's if it's not feeling good anymore it's time to ditch it and uh, I think we're a little too cavalier with with our relationships and our marriages. I think you, what you
0: said in there, if, if it's not feeling good, it's time to ditch it. And I think that that is this prevailing idea that everything is supposed to feel good. Mm -hmm. That, that, you know, every bite of food is supposed to be the most palatable, delicious thing that, that, uh, our health, that to, to improve our health, we often have to give up things that are, that we love and that feel good, uh, and that to go through life, there are moments just because it doesn't feel good doesn't mean it's bad. And it is absolutely calibrating that that thermometer because there are things that are bad. But being able to move through them is integral to moving through a, a life that will have struggle, that will have things that are tough and bad. And you can't just get up and walk out the door you have to you have to stay sometimes and you cultivate a desire to stay too i don't have to isn't isn't desire to go through these things you don't what you said you don't wake up on processing day and just like jump out of bed like ah oh, you know <laughs> today's just going to be a walk in the park yeah
1: <laughs> yeah wake up and yeah. your
0: heart is heavy
1: yeah. I mean it you can see it everywhere in our culture that I really think that even to you know being we're raising even children now with this idea that you know that everything should feel good. It's just like this loss of positivity over everything. And it's really kind of like I think we're really doing um our kids a disservice and young people a disservice where even hearing ideas outside of their own um, that are maybe counter to what they believe is dangerous or not It's violent. not safe. It's not safe. <laughs> it's not safe. Yeah. And, um, you it's know, the, that's going to go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's going to get us, you know, well, it's going to get us where we are, but I think that it's increasingly just really like it's as a culture, how it affects us and our ability to interact and just to have uh, with each other but also on a personal level it's such a disservice to the capacity of the human being. I mean yes. you are capable of so much more than you believe because you're limiting yourself in such a tiny little box um, that your experience of this wild and woolly life is going to be so limited. And that's really the sadness of it. It doesn't affect me if you want to live your life that way. It's your own sense that you're shortchanging. Yeah, you've diminished you've
0: diminished yourself. You've diminished the breadth of possibilities for yourself and and what you might contain. And yeah. it can be a lot. And you can, like we, like we said, I think you can stretch and you can grow to hold these things and these relationships and ideas that might run counter to your own when you're in, when you're stuck in community.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And you might be
0: surprised at the richness that you find there when you let go of safety. And that's been, that's been thematic throughout this conversation too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: I want to make sure you get to deliver your parcels. I wanted to end I think this is a good place to I'll ask you one last question after this, but you said serve life not just yours and the rest is just details. And I loved this. It was in an essay about service over purpose, about letting go of this pursuit of purpose or happiness maybe throughout the course of this conversation and to just be serve
1: life. Mm -hmm. I spent so much time trying to figure out what my purpose was because that's what I was told I had to figure out when I figured out what my purpose was. You know, in my late teens through my 20s, then I would, all would be good and I could like go on with my life devoted to whatever that purpose was. And I think that, I think self and our understanding of self and are knowing what it is that you know develops us and that that is important to us what our morals are what our principles are what our uh how we want to live our lives i think all those things are important but i don't think people need to be reminded of that as much anymore i think we're sort of like a culture consumed with self and i think that living a life of service, if someone had maybe even sprinkled that in to my upbringing would have been really helpful for me. And it took me a while to get there and to understand that. And when I say in service to life, I do mean all of life. I mean, this beautiful natural world that has been given to all of us, our lives, the lives of the people that we love, the lives of this plant, the life of this planet, that if I can live a life that is in service to the enrichment of the life of us all. I am serving my purpose. It's a default, like the end. That's what we're here for. And how that life of service looks for me may be different than how it looks for you because I have different gifts and talents and you have different gifts and talents and we have, we have different circumstances and where we are, but to be able to get out of what feeds me and and trying to weave myself into what feeds life and brings in the rightness that i'm trying to center myself around and also is my purpose it's all of our purpose (laughs) it's the purpose of being here we're here we got this incredible gift of life like what were the odds of that happening you know we're just these rarefied little gems that are going about our short 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 time on this planet and we're here to contribute something we're here for the betterment of other human beings and for this beautiful planet and however that looks is very different for all of us but if we're not in service to life then what are we serving because we're all serving something and so what are you serving and i think that if we spent some time examining what it is that we're serving it might help us to redirect ourselves to a place where we would feel more connected and more fulfilled and instead of angsting over what's my purpose i i just think that's just a construct of a a broken culture that really just go, it serves to, to have people chasing these ideas of, of staying within a system that's quite dysfunctional. That's what I found from my life.
0: (laughs) I love that. I love that. What, what feeds life, not just what feeds ourselves. I love that. I love everything about that. Um, The end of every podcast, I usually ask people what it means for them to lay the groundwork, but I think you might've just answered that pretty, pretty well.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's, I think that's it. It's just being a humble observer and witness and participant to the natural world and realizing that I am an integral part of that while I'm here. I'm here for a reason, and to accept with a servant's heart that this it, there is rightness, that, that creation designed perfection, and that it's not for me to judge and pluck out the parts that feel good or don't feel good, but to participate fully knowing that there's parts that just don't feel so good, but that doesn't mean they're wrong. Thank
0: you. Thank you for sharing so much wisdom. I I feel like I could cover, I mean, we could be here for hours and I didn't cover so much about farming. And I appreciate that you came here willing to talk about some deep philosophy uh, in (laughs) addition to farming. But I want to encourage everyone who's listening. I mean, your farming practices are bar none and it's a lot to be learned in that space. I know that just over the years, I've picked up so many little thoughts and and things to consider and and tricks about preserving food and about raising animals and giving them access to so many beautiful things, whether that's silvo pasture or individual minerals and vinegars and charcoal. And I'm just so appreciative of the work that you do in this space and
1: Well, thank you, Kate. I'm, I really am in awe of what you're doing too. And, you know, I've always had a big crush on butchers, so if you ever want to come up to Canada and show me some tricks I'd be all for it oh I would be all
0: for that I don't know if I'm allowed in Canada
1: no you're not probably I am not I'm not allowed in Canada you're not no I'm no.
0: not um and so I'm not
1: allowed to leave so <laughs> maybe we can tunnel to each other <laughs> We might have to dig a tunnel
0: since neither of us uh neither of us can you can't go and I can't oh, yeah. come to you. I would love that. I hope that someday those rules change and I would love to come to come butcher with you. You
1: come, you butcher and we'll have a feast. One I love day. that.
0: I love that. Um Thank you so much. Uh, we'll have links to where everyone can find you, and okay. and I encourage everyone to read your your Substack. Thank you. Yeah, and to subscribe. I'm a subscriber, and it's just wonderful to get to listen to you and to hear your essays as well as read them.
1: Thank you very much. It was wonderful to talk to you.
0: Yeah, you too. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.